0: Welcome to the 2016 Estabrook Distinguished Research Lectureship, Vocational and Community Integration After Acquired Brain Injury, presented by Dr. James F. Malik, Professor and Research Director of PMNR at Indiana University School of Medicine and Rehabilitation Hospital, and Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. This lecture was recorded on Friday, January 22, 2016 at the Kessler Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and is sponsored by Kessler Foundation and the Estabrook Distinguished Research Lectureship. The Estabrook Lecture Series memorializes Kenneth Estabrook, who supported Dr. Henry H. Kessler's efforts to improve the lives of people with disabilities. Estabrook, an attorney, served as trustee, vice president, and president of Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation from 1967 to 1986, as well as chairman of Kessler Rehabilitation Corporation and member of the Board of Trustees for Kessler Foundation. His wife Ann established this lectureship in 2001 to commemorate his 75th birthday.
1: Great to have you all here today. And uh, this is a great uh, lectureship that we have here. We bring in a a person from the outside to speak to us and meet with us. And uh, this is the Kenneth L. Estabrook Distinguished Research Scientist Lectureship. So let me tell you a little bit about this lectureship and how it came about. This uh, Kenneth L. Esterbrook Distinguished Lectureship was established by Kent's wife, uh, Anne Evans Estabrook, in recognition of Kent's many years of outstanding leadership, commitment, and support for Kester Institute and Kester Foundation over many years. Kent was a, a leading, he was a leader in the growth of Kessler for many for many years, for more than 30 years, in fact. He was elected to the Board of Trustees for Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in 1967. Kent served as Vice President from 1976 to 83, and President from 83 to 86. He also served as a trustee of the Kessler Foundation from its inception in 1985, until his death in 2003. Throughout his life, Ken remained interested in and committed to the continued expansion of research efforts at Kessler and to improve the quality of life of people with disabilities and in large part, Kessler Foundation was really uh, product of Ken Esterrook. Today, we're joined by Ken's son, Jim Jim. A, a huge uh, supporter of Kessler Foundation, and a former chairman of the board of our Kessler board. So Jim, thank you for being here today, and for doing for you and all your family have done for the mission of Kessler. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So I think you're all in for a treat today um, with uh, Dr. Jim Malik. Dr. Malik is a professor and research director of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Indiana University School of Medicine and Rehabilitation Hospital of Indiana, as well as Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the Mayo Clinic, where he worked for many years. Dr. Malik has been active in research and in clinical practice for brain injury rehabilitation for more than 35 years. He's one of the founding researchers in this area, of TBI. He's received a number of professional recognitions, including the Lohman Award for Interdisciplinary Contributions to Rehabilitation from the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, the Research Award of the North American Brain Injury Society, the Sheldon Beryl MD the Clinical Service Award from the Brain Injury Association of America, and the prestigious Robert L. Moody Prize for Distinguished Initiatives in Brain Injury Research and Rehabilitation. He's earned, he has published over 150 papers and uh, as well as uh, professional publications and presentations all over uh, the world and and conducting his research on on brain injury, rehabilitation and outcome. His talk of course is a very great fit today for the mission of the Tesla Foundation. And our, our mission of course in uh, helping individuals with their lives and disabilities and, and bridging the, the vocational issues from our our, 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 our research and, and, our, and our various other missions uh, in the program center. So I think uh, another part of what's really great about having Jim here today, is he's, a, he's really a founder of his intervention uh, of, of getting people with the TBI back to work. And we just received a grant uh, recently, and we're, we're using his program that he did in TBI. we're going to do this injury, so it's great to have you here today as being a partner with us. So please uh, join me in welcoming, welcoming Dr. Mallet for his uh,
2: presentation today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and th- thank you, John, for that very, very kind introduction. And, and thank you for inviting me to uh, give this lecture sip. I'm very honored to, uh, to be selected to do this. And, and for inviting me to visit Kessler and have a chance to meet many of the staff, see some old friends, make some new ones, and, and hear about all the important work that you're doing here, so I appreciate that. Uh, you know, as John said, uh, I'm very excited, and actually those of us at RHI and, and, the, and the med school of Indiana University, are excited to be collaborating with Dr. Troyer and John O'Neill on this new project uh, to advance employment among people with with spinal cord injuries. Uh, What I'm going to talk about today are the methods that we developed some years ago in Minnesota and that our group uh, continues in Indiana at at this point that have been helpful to people with brain injuries to return to employment after after injuries. And I think, you know, as, as I go through it, you'll see that it's a pretty easy translation to other disability groups. And although we've really focused on acquired brain injury uh, in our group, I'm, uh, I'm excited and I, uh, very optimistic about uh, uh, porting this over to spinal cord injury and, and maybe other, other groups after that. Uh, so you you're just to kind of set the stage let me tell you a little bit about uh, re-employment after brain injury. Uh, now, you know, the, in these data, we're really excluding people with relatively mild injuries. Uh, you know, people who have just sustained a concussion. Uh, you know, these are, are, are people who have sustained more moderate to severe injuries. <clears throat> and what you find as you look across a series of studies is that at best, you know, maybe 40% are returning to work after their injuries. You know, more, more likely it's around 25-30%. You, know, you know, in fact, the, the statistics are not much different after spinal cord injury. About 28-30% return to work after brain injury. Now that's without any, any intervention. That's kind of on their own, you know, using whatever resources they're able to, to uh, uh, access. In contrast, there's been another series of studies. Uh, including some of our own, uh, Dr. Trexler's at, at uh, the Rehab Hospital of Indiana, uh, showing that with a more focused, specific intervention, we can significantly increase those rates. Uh, you know, most cases double them, you know, more to 60, 70, uh, even in some cases 80%. Uh, and you know, the method that we, that we use to, to make those differences is, is one I'm going to describe in some detail this morning. There's also been a relatively recent systematic review of return to work after brain injury that again kind of underscores that figure of at best 40% returning to work. So, you know, to, to put it simply, what you find is that without intervention, 30 to 40% are employed. With intervention, 30 to 40% are unemployed. So really turning that, that statistic on its head. So how, how does that happen? Well, you know, before I I get into the weeds on this, uh, let me talk a little bit about a couple models of rehabilitation that may be familiar to most of you. But, you know, one way to approach rehabilitation is more of a medical model, where we basically try to fix what's wrong with the person and bring them back to the state that they were before their injury, or as close as possible. Uh, Nothing wrong with the medical model, you know, to the degree we do that, that's great, Uh, however, there's another model, which again I think most of us in rehabilitation use, along with the medical model, which is more of a social model. And you know, this is really a model that it's kind of a whatever it takes model. It's it's an approach in which the intervention is not just directed at the person with disability, but at the social system in which they operate. You know, this model was re- advocated by people with spinal cord injuries in the in the 70s, and has gained you know, some traction in the intervening period of time. Uh, and, you know, their, their case was really, it's not about the wheelchair, it's about the environment in which they have to interact with a wheelchair. So, you know, before curb cuts, before ramps, before uh, elevators in every building, a person with a wheelchair was quite disabled. Uh, <clears throat> now that we have some of those accommodations, uh, disability is decreased. And, you know, if you've, ever, if you've ever tried to keep up with a relatively fit person in a wheelchair, uh, you realize that, well, you wonder who's got the disability. I mean, they can. <laughs> in fact, if, you'll, if you'll pardon me a, a slight tangent, I, I uh, was watching a wheelchair basketball game last year and, and uh, a young man, and you know, these guys play hard. I mean, I'm sure many of you have had the same experience. You know, one young man was knocked over in his wheelchair uh, and he's strapped in and you know my first thought again being in brain injury is oh, I hope he didn't get a concussion. Well, no, like within seconds he was up on his hands and flipped himself <laughs> back up into an upright position. And again, I kind of left the game thinking now who's got the disability here, you know, because <laughs> I, I certainly wouldn't be able to, to do that. Uh, so, but again, you know, the social model is directed at making changes, not to the person necessarily, but to the social and physical environment to make it more a- accommodating and to reduce the disability for the person. And that brings us to the approach that I want to uh, detail for you, called resource facilitation. You know, in our original articles, we called it vocational case coordination, I think. Uh, you know, more recently, we've talked about it as resource facilitation. In any case, it's, it's a as I said, a whatever it takes model in which the focus is really on the goal and the outcome, with various methods contributing. You know, this is an attempt to try to illustrate the way it works, especially in brain injury. You know, we found that it often is is counterproductive to train people before before we place them uh, into a vocational situation, because oftentimes they can't generalize from the learning environment to the real-life environment. So you know, in most of our successful cases, we've placed people in work environments, assessed the situations, uh, prepared them a little more, uh, you know, trained them as needed, and at the same time, kind of to the side, worked on developing their network of social and physical support, modifying the environment to make that uh, intervention or to make that placement successful. A key to this model is a resource facilitator, someone who's kind of at the center of the game along with the client, uh, to help them find and tap the resources that they need in order to be successful in re-employment. In our original work, that the resource facilitator was a master's degree person with a, a, a vocational, in vocational counseling. Over the years, we discovered you really don't need an advanced degree to do this work. That the real key elements have more to do with the person's personality. You know, that they be advocates for people with brain injury and can advocate for their person, the person that they're working with in particular. That they're fairly extroverted, good with the phone, uh, good with talking with people, and good in just kind of making connections, you know, helping the person with the disability connect with the people they need to in order to find a job, keep a job. One of the major obstacles to re-employment in all disability groups is transportation. So that becomes a job for the resource facilitator. Uh, You know, many people with disabilities for whatever reason cannot operate uh, independent motor vehicle. So how can they get to work? Is there a friend? Is there a family member? Is there somebody from church? Somebody from their social club? Uh, you know who can make that connection? I mean, it's a concrete example, but that's the kind of thing that a resource facilitator worries about. Now, you know, f- people who may not be engrossed in this model sometimes uh, counter with, "Well, why can't the person, you know, just do that? Or why, are you know, why can't their family just do that?" Couple reasons why they don't, and believe me, they don't. We, you know, for years before we developed this model, we, uh, you know, routinely hooked people up with vocational rehabilitation in the state, uh, sent them off to uh, make that connection and, uh, you know, advance towards a job, and then discovered, you know, a year or two later that the connection never, you know, never failed, and or always failed. And, and you know, why? Why is that? Well. It's because, you know, for one thing, both people with recovering from these severe disabilities, as well as their families, are under a whole lot of real stress. I mean, it's all they can do. Again, I'm I'm telling telling you nothing they don't already know. know, It's all they can do in in many instances, just to get through the day. You know, just to get dressed and the basic activities of daily living, and move, move on with their life plus all the other things that confront us all, you know, now become not just molehills, but mountains. So to ask them to develop a network of support in order to get a job, is just beyond their capacity. And you know, to be honest, I think, even without a disability, it's probably beyond my capacity. You know, I mean, if I was in a situation where I had to begin again, you know, if somebody said, well, you can't be a neuropsychologist anymore, you gotta do something else, I'd be sitting for some time, you know, and and again, I don't have a disability to overcome. Uh, You know, plus I'm a card-carrying introvert, so picking up the phone is a major, major operation. You know, my point of all this is, it just doesn't work, and it's probably unreasonable to think that people can just handle this. However, if they have a person like a resource facilitator to give them a little help, it can make a huge difference to help them make this connection. You know, uh, Lance, Dr. Trexler, did an economic analysis of resource facilitation, and what, what his uh, analysis found is that per case, these services cost about $1,000. So, you know, in brain injury, we're talking about people that we've already devoted 200, 300, half a million dollars in terms of acute and inpatient rehabilitation, you know, medical care uh, to to keep them alive and get them moving. For another grand, we can give them back their life. So, what what is this? What is this resource facilitation? Well, you know, the, the fundamental elements are that you have a resource facilitator who works with the person to develop. A plan that is their own. And that is a very important element. This isn't the resource facilitator's plan, this isn't the doctor's plan, this is the person's plan. Where do they, what kind of a job do they want, Uh, can they still do that job, if not what are the other options. You know as you can imagine that may take some time and some experience for the person to come to terms with the, the changes and limitations that, that they have to deal with, but again, is key, you know, to the success. Is that uh, this isn't something that we're hoisting on the person. This is something that they own and that is really their goal. And then to help them develop this network of medical and community services and supports to help them return to work and be successful in that in the job that they choose. You know, our approach has always emphasized early intervention. I know in a in, uh, Troyer and John's uh, uh, study, they are planning to intervene on the inpatient unit to begin the process. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure how that would work with brain injury these days when people come to inpatient rehab much more acutely and, uh, and, and leave much more early, earlier, sometimes still in significant cognitive disarray. Uh, but, you know, back, back in the day when we had people a little, a little longer, uh, we did start to talk to them about return to work even on the inpatient rehabilitation unit. And you know, what we found is that offered them and their families a great deal of hope. And again, we were pretty clear that in fact, you know, especially in the more severe cases, we might not get down to business on return to work uh, you know, another six months, maybe even a year, but that we had had success in returning even people with severe disabilities to work and that that was definitely on the radar for them. And again, you know, just that, that glimmer of hope, that light at the end of the tunnel, seemed to be very encouraging to people. So I'm glad that uh, Trier and John are going to at least introduce this concept on the inpatient unit. I think that'll be helpful to people and will begin, begin the process of, of uh, resource facilitation. Another important fundamental element is work in independent living trials. Uh, You know, people need to try themselves out, you know, uh, and I think this is probably as much true for spinal cord injury as for brain injury, that uh, there's an adjustment here. You know, you may not be able to do all the things that you were able to do before your injury. There may need to be some adjustments in your job. Uh, You may need a somewhat different job. Uh, You know, being able to select that different job and try it out You know, see if it still works for you. See if it's something you'll still find satisfying, and see if it's something that you can be at which you can be successful is very important. So that you know that is a a key element, and along with that, some temporary supports and coaching. Uh, In brain injury, sometimes people have longer-term supports and coaching. They may may need somebody to touch base with periodically to keep the job on track. I think that's probably going to be less true in spinal cord injury, uh, but you know, some initial, initial help is, is probably going to be important. And then, you know, involving the significant people in their lives in, in this project, so getting that support from their close others. Uh, another important role for the resource facilitator is making a contact <coughs> with the employer and helping them understand about the nature of the, of the person's disability. You know, again, in, in, uh, you know, in our work, we always want, you know, as much as possible for the person, the client, to be speaking for themselves. You know, we don't want to speak for them. Uh, but we've also found that it's helpful to kind of have somebody to help them out a little bit, especially, you know, if, if the employer is asking medical questions, uh, so, you know, if, and, and you know, in brain injury we found that employers are concerned that the person might have a seizure at work. Well, what, are, you know, what are the possibilities of that? You know, we can honestly tell them, uh, you know, pretty, pretty low or we wouldn't be sending them back to you. Uh, you know, are, are they worried sometimes of brain injury that the person's gonna lose control, you know, go out of control and, and go crazy or something? Again, you know, we are able to explain that that's pretty rare and if, if something should happen, give us a call, you know, you've, you've got some backup here. You know, a few conversations like that, uh, you know, we found do a lot to dispel some of the problems that are some of the concerns that employers have. And you know, we can, it also gives us a chance to explain to employers that, you know, statistics are that people with disabilities make excellent employees. They're, they're very reliable, you know, very committed, very conscientious. And there's also, at least in some states, some economic benefits to employ people with disabilities. So those you know, those conversations uh, again can be very helpful, kind of set the stage for a successful return to work. So let me give you a little more detail on you know what this what this method involves. As I mentioned previously, you know, I think a key element is early intervention. Uh, you know, it, it it's not a necessary condition. I mean, we've certainly worked with some people many years after their injury but I think the earlier you can get in, the the better. Uh, Part of it is to see if any additional services are needed just in terms of basic rehabilitation. I remember one case in particular where uh, a young woman with a brain injury who had some ankle weakness uh, was not able to hold her job as a clerk because uh, she couldn't stand for long periods of time. So she applied for our services well, that was an easy one. It was a matter of getting her a brace and a stool and she was good to go. Uh, you know, most of the cases aren't that easy, but uh, just an example of where, you know, making a connection with uh, a, a, re- a simple rehabilitation intervention can make a huge difference. You know, in all this work, and I, I don't think I've emphasized this enough uh, uh, thus far in this talk, But our focus is really on the real-life outcome, you know, getting people back to work. More importantly, getting people back to a satisfying job. Uh, You know, it's like Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. So this isn't about doing everything you can for a person. This is about doing everything they need. Again, with a focus on that target of, you know, what is their goal? Where do they want to be in life? Now, you know, let's work backwards and do what we need to do to, to make that happen. So, you know, in, in, and, you know, for, for most of the people we've worked with, that has made a lot more sense to them, also, to be focusing on real life goals as opposed to fixing all their, their, their impairments. And then, again, developing with the person a fairly comprehensive plan to address and you know, this, this list may not be comprehensive, but to address the things that they need in order to get back to work. Uh, and you know, all of these can be significant barriers, especially if you have a disability, uh, not only to return to work, but to return to life. So this, this is a holistic approach. It's looking at what's needed to make, to make this intervention successful, and then addressing those issues. You know, this, this process smooths the transition from rehabilitation and medical services to more community-based services. If, and you know, when I, when I say community-based services, I, I'm talking both about official services, you know, kind of funded by the state or the federal government, as well as by other community services, you know, church groups, social groups, friends, families, you know, whatever is available. You know, one thing we found as we began this work is that many of these people in the community, well, that there were many resources available in the community for people with brain injuries. However, they weren't connected with people with brain injuries and weren't connected with each other. Now, we, you know, we decided not to try to change the world and get everybody working together, but, but we did think it was realistic to get everybody working together for a given case. Again, we found that to be very important. That uh, you know, if if the person has a problem with substance abuse, the substance abuse uh, uh, counselor needs to be in contact with the vocational counselor. You know, needs to be in contact. Uh, with, you know, with with the rehabilitation people, so that we're all on the same wavelength and moving forward uh, in a in a coordinated way on on uh, on this project. Again, I think this is particularly true in brain injury that real life experiences, real life evaluations are more valid than simulated or laboratory type evaluations, Uh, again, because of that generalization problem. Although I suspect to some degree this is true for almost anyone that doing it in real life is a different situation than doing it uh, you know, in a simulated environment. And anybody who uh, finds that they're quite able on the driving range and just terrible on the golf course you know, can understand what I mean. Uh, you know, that generalization is hard for, for all of us. So you know, the emphasis on placing, evaluating, and then training you know, may be applicable to other disability groups besides, besides brain injury. Throughout this process, uh, and again, something I probably haven't emphasized enough, uh, you know, substantial support for the person is necessary. This is tough. Uh, it can be emotional drain, emotionally draining for the person to begin to confront their disabilities, to have some failures along the way as they try jobs that they thought they can do and find out because of their new condition they may not be able to do, make those adjustments. So support and maybe sometimes even some more intensive services are needed to, to deal with those emotional issues. And then to continue, you know, the training and support after placement. You know, our experience that can gradually be weaned, you know, over the, over the course of the next few months and year. Uh, but, uh, you know, we also found it very helpful for somebody on the vocational team to be a, a resource for the employer. Uh, you know, we, we have had a number of examples of situations where we've successfully placed a person with brain injury into a job, they've been doing quite well for months, maybe even a year or two, and then we get a call from the employer saying, I don't know what, what happened. You know, this person was doing so well, and you know, now, She's coming in late, she's anxious and disorganized at work, she's not doing her job. If something isn't fixed, I'm gonna to have to fire her. And you know, our vocational person, our resource facilitator, in most cases, has heard this story before, goes and says, you know, hang on, uh, you know, I'll be down later in the day or tomorrow and, and visit with this person, goes down, analyzes the situation, and you know, talks with the boss, the boss, and, and your first question is, well, what's changed? Well, nothing. It's the same old job. We did have some new forms that all the but you know all the employees have to fill out those, and uh, and you know she's doing such a great job. We decided to move her out of that cubicle close to the window so she gets some bright light. Talks, <laughs> yeah, you know where I'm going with this. Talks to a person with brain injury. Who's, who explains that she cannot possibly understand these forms, and that bright light is driving her crazy because she's becoming more sensitive to light because of, of the brain injury. Those are simple fixes. You know the, we, we get her back for some brief therapy to help her understand the forms, you know, work with these, these new uh, new methods, get her away from the window into a, an environment that's a little more Accommodating, and we're back on track, and, and you know, and successful again. And they, again, there's been any number of times where our resource facilitator has been able to save the placement with some simple adjustments. Uh, you know, because people with brain injury are so sensitive to these kind of small changes that uh, you know many of the people around them feel are, are, are fairly fairly trivial. You know, accommodations uh, are important. For all disability groups I think they'll be even more important for spinal cord injury uh, you know because of the, the motor disabilities. And you know, as I mentioned before, getting all the important people in, in the person's life, again with their permission and their and their uh, support involved in this project so everybody knows what's going on. everybody's pulling on the same same ropes. You know, ultimately we want to let the person live their life and be their own advocate. So part of the process is, in fact, advocacy training, helping them learn to do what we do in order to get a job, keep a job, uh, and and be successful in life. Yeah, I mentioned already that the resource facilitator, or at least the team, remains as a contact person in case problems arise in the future. You know, initially, we uh, provide that follow-up fairly routinely and regularly, but as time goes on, as a person is successful, we back away and and are more on the sidelines, uh, ready to jump in as needed. So let me tell you a little bit about the outcomes in terms of data on how all this works. Now, you know, in the cohorts that I'll talk about first, most of these people had traumatic brain injury, Uh, You know, the vast majority were moderate to severe. You know, even the mild ones were complicated milds. These are people who had multiple mild injuries or or some other substance abuse problems that uh, went along with or intensified the disability that they had after their mild injuries. Most were living uh, with no assistance, although some were living in semi-independently. And we kind of had the usual contingent of psychiatric and substance abuse histories among our sample. So this this is pretty much a real life community sample. These people weren't cherry picked. Uh, You know, these are are the kind of folks that came for our clinical services. We rated our outcomes on a fairly simple scale, uh, with the best being competitive employment, which we defined as independent work in the community, uh, without any supports. You know, and we said at least 15 hours a week. In fact, most of these people are working, you know, somewhere in the 28 to 40 hour range of employment. Under that, we had transitional employment, which was similar, except there were some temporary supports in place that we, uh, that, you know, that we thought could be uh, d- diminished over time. Are they were people who are in some kind of a training program uh, in, in, as part of their, their re-employment? You know, one that decks down from that is supported employment. Uh, these are people working in the community, but with supports that we think are going to be permanent. So there may be a peer coach in the employment situation that's going to be around, you know, we think indefinitely. Are people who, have, who are doing volunteer work? Uh, Under that is sheltered work, which you're all familiar with, and then, you know, the worst outcome, of course, is unemployed. In our first first cohort, which had you know, a little over 100 people in it, what we found is that we were able to place almost 50% in independent work, another 25% in these transitional placements, and about another 10% in uh, long-term supported employment. Uh, So, you know, pushed on 80% working in the community with or without support. We really didn't count sheltered work as a successful outcome, even though for some people it may be be the best outcome that they can have. And then, of course, unemployment was not an acceptable outcome. I think more impressive uh, to, to me is that a year after this intervention, most of these placements are maintained. In fact, to some degree, they're a little better. You know, after A year later, for the people we were able to follow up with, we've got over 50% working in the community and another uh, 30% working either in transitional or long-term uh, supported situations. The group who are still in transitional uh, placements were, were generally in, in training uh, situations where they continued to be trained. Uh, for longer than a year. Now, uh, you know, in that first cohort, that was really the, the, the cohort that we developed this process with, and I, I must give the lion's share of the credit for all this to a vocational counselor called Angie Buffington, who uh, was, was key in developing these concepts. Angie had the very poor judgment of deciding not to be a vocational counselor anymore and become a neuropsychologist. (laughs) I warned her, but she wouldn't listen. And I assume she's a very fine neuropsychologist at this point. But she was an exceptional vocational counselor. So part of our question with the first cohort was, are we seeing an Angie effect? You know, is this all about having just an incredibly dynamic person who's advocating for these people? So, you know, we had a couple other vocational counselors subsequently uh, in Angie's position once she decided to go back to school, uh, who were also very good. I, I I can't say they were Angie, but they were they were very good. and so we, we uh, kept track of another cohort and got very similar results. Again, these are a little bigger group, almost hundred forty people. Uh, you know, one difference you'll see is that we placed less people in independent work at, at you know, initially after the intervention. Uh, and, you know, and, and more people in support, our transitional supports. That was mainly because over time, we were able to develop access to more supported employment situations. And so, you know, we opted to place people in a little safer situation than we did, in, in, because we could, because it was available. However, you know, a year later, again, we see much the same as in the first cohort, that over 50% are working independently in the community with no support, and another, you know, approximately 25% are working in the community either with longer-term supports or in some kind of a training uh, transitional situation. Now, I guess I also want to emphasize that these aren't necessarily broom pushing jobs. We weren't just placing people in jobs that uh, required minimal skill. We were really looking for jobs that they found satisfying and that they could do. Uh, And let's give some examples. I think kind of our hardest placements have been with physicians. Uh, Even though, I mean, there are some areas of medical practice that are fairly routine that we we felt our physicians could do. Uh, We didn't have a lot of physicians in our program, but we had a couple. And you know, we thought that they could do, and in fact, they seem to do, but you know, there is such concern about liability in medical practice these days that basically it just wasn't practical for them to continue. In fact, one of them, uh, who I uh, was very impressed with, his practice kind of showed him the door because they were concerned about liability. So over time, he learned acupuncture you know, and did it right, you know, went to... Uh, training sessions on California for almost a year to learn how to do it correctly, and then opened his own acupuncture practice and was very successful and, and actually very gratified. He was, loved to talk about the cases that he was able to help, that he was unable to help as a physician. Uh, and I could, t- I, w- I, w- I could tell you many other stories of, of people who are working at a, fir- a fairly high level and were able to return, to, but at routine work, that you know they were able to uh, return to because the you know, only thing after brain injury is that your old learning is usually intact. You know, I'll share one more example with you. Uh, it was a, an airline mechanic. Well, not an airline mechanic. He was an airplane mechanic. He worked on these small uh, small engines in, in smaller airplanes. <clears throat> Turned out that was an ideal placement for a person with brain injury because unlike cars. Evidently, the engines in small planes don't change over time. I mean, they, they found a good design and they're sticking with it. So he was able to do that work you know, quite well because he knew it so well before his brain injury. On top of that, in, in that industry, everything is triple checked. So should he have made a mistake, he's got two other people behind him who are going, going to catch that mistake. Well, he returned you know, to the small airport at w- which he worked at previously, uh, and you know, really no problem at all from his crew. I mean, they, they had, he had a great deal of respect before his injury and, and earned that, uh, or re-earned that after his injury. Uh, how did he get his injury? Before he walked into a propeller. So was, you know, ma- many of these people received other services. Uh, this is not in lieu of state vocational services, it's in collaboration with state vocational services. Um, you know, another barrier to re-employment that we've, we've found, and again, no, no offense to anybody, I you mean, know, all these things are necessary, but typically when one of our patients would walk into the voc rehab office, you know, they'd have a short interview and they'd be handed a sheaf of forms to fill out and request for medical information. Uh, you know, they'd take those, take them home, show them to their family, and they'd end up in a drawer or the wastebasket because it was just overwhelming. Again, simple intervention, you know, in, 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 the, in the new era, our resource facilitator would go with them, get those forms, help them fill them out, help them get the medical information they need to support their application and get the process moving. And, you know, we, develop, we have developed a very good relationship with Voc rehab, in fact, in Indiana, Dr. Trexler has done, I think, a remarkable job of working with VR, who, who just love this model because it's doubling their return to work rates, and uh, and you know, at this point, is is working statewide with the VR counselors uh, to implement this resource facilitation approach. So, you know, just to summarize, uh, we're talking about seventy to eighty percent community-based employment, a one-year follow-up, you know, the majority in independent employment. Uh, You know, know, just as of interest, about 40% return to their former employers. And I think part of that is that early contact with the employer, that early intervention. Uh, You know, as soon as possible, especially if the person's been a good employee, we try to get in touch with the employer and kind of get them Get them on the line, and you know, you can let them know. It may be some while before we're looking to get this person back to work, but uh, but you know, would like to stay in contact, and and you know, maybe you can work with us to find find a good job. Most of our placements are within six months. Almost all are within a year, and basically, a year was always kind of the fish or cut bait point for us. I mean, if we weren't Successful in a year we really had to think that through with the client and and see it because you know there there were We did work with a few people who Just didn't have their heart in it, you know, so so we might we might call it quits You know at, so, at some point if we weren't being successful on the other hand You know I always tried to leave the door open so even on those people for those folks that we said, you know I you know I don't know that this is going to work out uh, you know, should you be more interested in, in getting a job at, at a future date? We're always here. You know, come on back. You know, Dr. Textler has done a couple randomized controlled trials. Uh, you know, for the methodologists amongst us, we can uh, debate about the uh, uh, wisdom of doing a random or the necessity of doing a randomized controlled trial with uh, with with this kind of a model. But uh, you, know, if you put that aside for a minute. People are always impressed with randomized controlled trials, so I'm very happy that Lance did did these. And in fact, what he saw, showed was you know clear results in favor of the resource facilitation model. You know, this is his first trial, and in a replication study, you know showed similar results. He did have better better outcomes for the control group. Uh, I think the word was out about resource facilitation, so it's not clear that the controls were really controls. But nonetheless, you know, kind of superior results for the group in the resource, with resource facilitation. And this just shows kind of the array of uh, jobs that those people returned to. Again, a variety, ranging from you know, production jobs to more professional uh, and administrative kind of posts. I won't spend a lot of time on this but we were interested what were the best predictors of outcome after brain injury so we looked at a number of things that you see before you. Uh, We used the Mail Portland, uh, the items are listed here, to assess disability prior to intervention and after intervention. And what we found is that the major drivers of outcome were how chronic the person was, how much time had elapsed since injury, and how what their level of impairment and disability was. Uh, you know, in terms of chronicity, uh, again, I know this is true after brain injury, I suspect it's true after, in other disability groups, you know, with, with uh, more time and more discouraging outcomes and more lack of success, uh, you know, people just are very vulnerable to other kind of disorders like depression, other psychological disorders, substance abuse social problems, et cetera, that complicate their lives and and make any kind of, and become barriers for for intervention. In brain injury, it's not how severe the injury was, but the level of disability that seems to drive outcomes. So, you know, it's not how, how high your, or how low your Glasgow Coma Scale was that drives the outcomes, it's how much disability you're left with when you enter rehabilitation. And again, you know, we see that people who entered the resource facilitation process more than a year after, uh, after injury had less optimal outcomes. Although, you know, basically the same percentage are returning to community-based employment. If you look at the lighter blue bars there, you know, about 75-80%. However, that more chronic group more frequently needs support than than the group who were able to catch earlier after their injury. So again, you know, try to sum up here. uh, You know, begin with the end in mind. What is the desirable outcome? Where does the person want to be in their life? And then do what's necessary with a focus on physical and environmental modifications and networks to get them there, and no more. So not only do I believe this is an effective model, I think it's a cost-effective model. And just a reminder of this in, in duplicate, apparently. Uh, you know, I'll mention one other thing very briefly, some work done by that's being done by Bob Fraser, and he's been involved in for, for many years out in Seattle. He's kind of taken this process, I think, another step in developing a more permanent network of support, kind of an employer counselor, or a counsel in, his, in, in the Seattle area of people who themselves can be advocate for re-employment of, of, disability, of people with disabilities in their own corporations as well as in, among other uh, corporate managers that they, they know. Uh, you know, it's a very targeted marketing involved. Situation uh, for industries that have had success in employing, employing people with disabilities, and uh, you know, as I said, developing this network of receptive employers. So I, I hope I hope uh, you know I've been able to convince you of the value of a resource facilitator in in developing this kind of a program, the value of early intervention, and the success you know of this kind of intervention among brain injury, almost regardless of level of disability and chronicity. Of course, with greater disability and greater chronicity, more services and support may be required. And this is just a glimpse of Indianapolis. You know, that's, uh, you can get there by horseback. I, I know how, how people are out here. I, <laughs> no, it's a, a very, nice, uh, very nice little town. Uh, that, that's the rehab center up on the far right. Uh, On the left is our new Neuroscience Center, and that's out back of our our rehab center, the rehab hospital, uh, our our garden at Christmas time. This is my email in case uh, you have any questions that I haven't been able to answer today. uh, You'll feel free free to drop me a line. Uh, And with that, I'll, I'll call it quits and see if you have some questions or comments now.
1: We do have time for questions, Trevor. So, so you looked at the vocational outcome predictors like uh, severity of injury, but did you look at the the importance or the role of uh, family support or social support in uh, predicting
0: whether somebody got
2: work? No, no, we didn't, uh, and I think it, it would be a good a good addition, uh, although. From another perspective, we also felt like it was part of the job, is to help them, you know, so even if they're, you know, in a few cases, family just wasn't any help or might have even been a negative influence, to help them kind of rebuild another more intimate social network, you know, kind of substitute for the family. But no, I think it's a good good point. It would be another interesting research item is, you know, to what degree is the success of that social network or family network important to reemployment. You you think it, it is, you know, pretty, yeah.
0: I'm curious about the role of the resource facilitator because it feels like sort of the black box in the equation. And how do you recruit those people and how do they organize the information that they need to be able to use it effectively, generalizing from one client to another to another?
2: Yeah no good questions. You know first off it is very much a black box. You know, and that's, that, that was kind of my snide comment about RCTs, was uh, I, I'm not really sure what we're testing here with RCT. You know, it's, it's a whatever it takes model. So the intervention, although there's a concept here, you know, the intervention is different for every person. So, uh, uh, but, but you know, the, the resource facilitator themselves have a fairly clear agenda. And you know, as, as uh, Lance, uh, Dr. Drexler has developed this, Uh, you know, go through a a fairly systematic training program that emphasizes the kind of fundamental features and key features that I talked about. So people, you know, are, you know, uh, they get didactic work to understand how to implement this. And then, you know, probably more importantly, they get coaching and training from more experienced people as they move forward. Uh, You know, these cases are, are also staffed, you know, with some regularity. Uh, you know, with a neuropsychologist and and you know other team members again, you know to kind of problem solve as as they run into obstacles. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, Lance has done a great job of expanding this uh, statewide, so he has a fairly large team now, and you know they're in a in a place where they can have you know regular staffings and kind of problem problem solve together. Uh, so th- th- I hope that, that that answers answers your question to some degree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, but, but I mean, again, admittedly, it's, it is a black box, will always be a black box, you know, it's, it's that kind of, a, kind of an intervention. Yeah, I
0: mean, I guess, also, um, those, the, the people, they play such a
2: crucial role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, yeah, you know, your other question was, how do we find these people? Yes. Uh, you know, uh, we really do look for advocates at this point, as opposed to their training. And most of our, yeah, I would say most of the people in Lance's program at this point are people with some personal investment in brain injury. So these are people who have a family member or a close other who had a brain injury. And, you know, again, I, you know, I, I think maybe that may be the most important thing, you know, a real commitment to this work. Question just about
0: um, the participants, their age and also gender. Um, can you tell me a little bit or tell us a little bit?
2: You know, I, I'm sorry. I don't have the you know, statistics around the top of my head, uh, but you know, it was a very typical in both our cohorts, very typical brain injury sample. So, so more men than women. You know, more like 75, 25, uh, and you know, age was up to you know early 60s. We we really had very few people, maybe one or two older than 60, mainly because they opted for retirement in most cases than then return to work. Or are, are the you know, in, in those few cases, as I recall, they they would go to more of a volunteer placement. But did you also have younger, 20 you know, year olds? Oh yeah, yeah, in fact in fact that was probably the majority of our of our group, because uh, because you know that's kind of a bolus and in brain injury is is in the 18 to 25 year old range. So that that was, you know, most of most of our clients. And you know that, that also presented uh, kind of a challenge because some of those people really didn't have a work history beforehand. So they, in many ways, were starting uh, you know, from, from scratch.
0: I also ask because in work I did for a long time ago, some of the unemployed were women who opted to stay at home. I have a problem with that being considered
2: unemployment yeah yeah
0: because that age range a
2: lot of them do decide to stay at home and uh, work from there yeah yeah no and and you know that that I mean I agree with you that's certainly a, a very important life work you know those folks usually did not enter our program uh, yeah I, yeah I can't think maybe we had one whose main goal was to become a homemaker again. Uh, but you know, the main reason was we just didn't know how to how to do that. You know, it was a, it's a different operation than trying to find somebody a job in the community. So. I
0: guess in terms, of, like, if, if, because this is a, as you said, it's a whatever it takes approach. In terms of personnel, how many people did you assign to each location? Where they had to without them being burned out or overwhelmed. How did you kind of prevent that as well?
2: You know that I mean, the question about burnout is a very good one. In, fa- in fact, these resource facilitators, uh, you know, sometimes have caseloads of 50 or even more. But you know, the reason, the, w- the way that makes sense is, you know, these people, the, the people they're working with are at various places. You know, so so most of those people may have been folks that they've placed and now they're following, and so they're only working intensively, you know, with with a few people. Uh, yeah, it, and it really does vary. I mean, I, I, uh, uh, I, I think we tried very hard to be sensitive to burnout. But it really does kind of vary with the demands of the case, which, which again can vary dramatically. I mean, there's you know, some people that uh, you, know, you might spend two days out of a week working on a single case, whereas the other 10 people on your caseload, you know, it's an hour a week just kind of keeping things on track.
0: You know that we're interested in hidden as well as as physical disabilities as you are. and when we were talking about the really great individual versus social approaches, um, I was reminded of something that Martha Sarno said years ago uh, you know with relation to aphasia to speech and language deficit that she had um, a person that she was working with in you know social reintegration and work reintegration who had said that he um, wasn't able to return to work until he started to tell people that he was from Sweden. <laughs> and when he, so that reframed the situation. Mm-hmm. Communication. What kind of approaches, you know, do you, you teach your, uh, you know, reintegration folks to make things simpler in that
2: way? Well, you know, it, it is very individual individualized. Uh, in general, we do coach people to. Uh, Communicate about their disabilities. Com- communicate about their limitations, rather than have an employer be surprised by them. You know, uh, I don't know that we were ever as clever as telling people they were from another country, but 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 uh, but, uh, but, but but you know, it, it, you know, we, we overall we found it it uh, to be more successful to kind of put it on the table and make, and and you know explain it and 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 make it You know, make the problems understandable. As opposed to uh, have people miss you have the employer misunderstand or you know uh, attribute you know some unusual behavior to something besides the brain injury, Uh, and and you know you you remind me of another uh, aspect of this, which is finding the right fit for people. You know, so you know with their new set of abilities, you know where. Where in the world you know can they find a place to work that still that works for them and still makes them happy? and you know that seemed seemed critical. Uh, in fact I, there was one case uh, I'm actually a little a little embarrassed about but I'll, it's a good story. Uh, we, we had one one uh, client with brain injury who was terribly disinhibited I think it was probably pretty disinhibited before his brain injury but Brain injury did not help the situation, so you know he would he would curse all the time, and worse still, a woman could not pass without a comment, you know, Uh, and and, you know fairly obscene. So we, as you might imagine, had a lot of difficulty placing him any place, you know. We and we you know we worked with him to try to get help him get better control of his behavior, which with limited success. And we, you know, we'd place him someplace and he'd last about a week and you know, all, the, all the women would band together and say, he's gotta go, and, <laughs> and of course, you know. And then, and then, at long last, we got him a placement in a diner in Wisconsin, kind of working in the kitchen. And our Vogue called up, a, You know, we didn't hear anything for a week. Vogue called up, said, How's it going? And his boss is like, great, no problem. <laughs> and you know, she goes, okay, great. <laughs> and so she calls back a week later, you know, expecting that he's been killed or something. And, and uh, the boss again is like, hey, no problem. So, so, you know, at this point she's just really curious. And so uh, uh, she says, hey, can I come over and visit? You know, it wasn't too far from from Rochester, Minnesota. And say, sure, yeah, come on by. And now our role our counselor, our resource facilitator at that point was uh, well, it was a, a very attractive young woman. So she walks into the diner, goes back to the kitchen, and the boss is, is whoa, hubba humba, look at you. <laughs> Turns out he's exactly the same kind of guy. <laughs> so it worked. Again, I'm not proud of it, but it worked.
0: wondering how your placement efforts coordinate with the public transit offerings in the area and if that's part of a strategy for some of your clients.
2: Yeah absolutely you know in, in uh, you know in the Midwest we're we're less fortunate in some areas especially in small towns with public transportation but we're available we, we certainly do access that and, and you know that might be another aspect of the intervention is if the person needs how to, to learn how to use the bus, you know, in our setting Oftentimes that's a, an OT or a recreational therapist who will do that kind of training with them, but you know, that, that might be part of the, part of the intervention. Or, you know, as I said before, if uh, public transportation isn't available, you'll try to engage you know, a church group or a social group you know, to help them with, with that problem. So, but yeah, it's, it's kind of at the top of the list of, of you know, how, to, how to just help people get around.
0: Thank you, Dr. It's been so interesting. Um, I'm a finance person, okay. I'm a scientist. So uh, you had said early on that this intervention uh, this process costs about a thousand dollars in addition, uh, additional for each um, participant. Who pays for that? Because one 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 resource facilitator with fifty clients,
2: is, you know, that's going to cost fifty thousand dollars. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's. A, you know, in our <laughs> in, 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 no, it, actually, it's a very good question because. Uh, it and it, it's it's kind of a sore issue for me because again I get back to that point that you know we've already spent a huge amount of money on these folks to keep them alive. Could somebody find a grand to give them a life? You know, I mean, it's in our state. And again, I have to give uh, Dr. Trexler immense credit for this. I mean, he uh, he has a real gift for getting people to work together. You know, he's. Uh, you know, to, to the degree I'm an introvert, he's an extrovert, you know, he's, uh, and that's exactly what he's done. So so in our state, vocational rehabilitation will pay for these services and feel like they've gotten a bargain because, you know, their 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 statistics are dismal and now they're superstars, you know, in terms of the return to work of, of people with brain injury. And, and you know, again, I, you know, it's just a puzzlement to me why other states don't catch on, you know, and maybe they will, you know, maybe now that Lance is showing this on a, a fairly large population base, it'll start to make more sense to people.
1: Jim, I have, I have a question. It's a, quite a great talk. And you know, 80% of moderate severe people back to work is incredibly impressive. Um, I'm wondering, though, was this uh, was somewhat of a, of a subject selection issue also, where did you select people who were motivated to go back to work, and therefore, 80% is only a subset of individuals who were really motivated or pre-selected in yeah. some way. You know,
2: you know, you know, yeah, you know, not really. I, 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 honestly think this this is pretty much a uh, standard outpatient, you know, brain injury sample. Uh, in like fact, we, you know, we tried not to be too, too rigid in any selection criteria. You know, the people did have to have a goal of return to work. You know, it's kind of a basic, and. Uh, you know, so some people, for, you know, like I mentioned, who whose main main goal was to go back to being a homemaker, or who were approaching retirement age, you know, and it was really unrealistic, you know. But otherwise, it was kind of all comers, and you know, as I mentioned, you know, 25% had psychiatric dis- or 33% had psychiatric disability or some disorder. You know, 25% have substance abuse disorders. So, so yeah, I don't think th- these were cherry picked. You know, these were this was like a real life community sample. Uh, that's
1: very impressive. And did you also run into the uh, the issue of people who uh, felt like if they got a job, they would lose their government supports, so therefore were less likely to, to look? Because that's always an issue that one has to deal with. I imagine that your program informs people
2: about that and how that works. Yeah, and no, that, that is a barrier. Uh, you know, some of that uh, you know I think is in particularly in Minnesota, but but to some degree in Indiana too, uh, you know, people do have a, a, a very strong work ethic. You know, so so you know, I mean the more typical person in in Minnesota and Indiana is like, I don't want nothing from the government, you know I mean uh, <laughs> So, so, so you know, and, and maybe to that degree, there was a selection bias in that, you know, we, we were working in a particular culture that really valued work, and any other preference was to to not be on social security the rest of their life, you know. Yeah. Well, take um, one more question. Hi, I have
1: a question that's similar to Anne's in terms of the finances, but I'm wondering in terms of the study, you. Uh,
0: were able to connect the people who are injured with the resource facilitator in terms of thinking of the future and transitioning this to something that might be a long term um, resource for the community. Where would the resource facilitator kind of be housed, and how have you thought about how to ensure that the people who become injured will be able to somehow be connected with the resource
1: facilitator? Uh, and, and that seems to be an issue. When people are injured, in general, getting back in the
0: kidney, they don't know where to find the resources. So, how how is it? Do you think do you see that you'll be able to connect people with resource facilitator to ensure that there is continued success in um, finding employment for these
2: individuals? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I think that various models can work, and we and, you know we've we've discussed various models over the years. In in the two models that have worked. It's the, the you know the home for the resource facilitator has really been a rehab center, you know in our case in Minnesota it was part of our outpatient program, and we were able to get support for that you know and it, you know, get back to the finances in that case you know the hospital really picked up the tab for the resource facilitator, but we were able to sell it to them as being a great way to assure that we could you know market some exceptional outcomes you know for our outpatient program. And, you know, in Indiana, again, uh, you know, Lance and the Rhea Hospital of Indiana have really picked up the ball in terms of providing these services and been able to negotiate funding from from VR. Uh, You know, although I can also imagine, you know, this this might be a project that a brain, you know, well-developed Brain Injury Association could do. Because, again, this really isn't rocket science, you know? I mean, uh, it's a, a very common sense, systematic method uh, but you know, it's it's a whatever it takes. It has more to do with uh, commitment and, and persistence than than you know advanced educational knowledge. So uh, so you know, uh, and you know to some degree the now you know in, in Minnesota the, the our uh, vocational rehabilitation has go- gone through kind of the typical cycles of interest in brain injury and not interest in brain injury. Uh, but, in the meantime the brain injury Associ- association there has continued with some degree of resource facilitation it 's not not as as focused and intensive as 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 I would like, but you know they do uh you know they will do a lot of the work over the phone, which may not be completely adequate but but you know they they're able to make make a difference in many in many people's lives so so uh, you know uh I think probably the home of the resource facilitator uh, really depends on the the resources in the in the particular locale. Uh, but but you know I also want to emphasize your point that you really do need a program that continues because these problems don't don't go away. You know especially after a brain injury, just getting a person placed even for a year may not be the end of the story. You know they may be back to see you in two years, three years, five years.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Malcolm. It's a great talk Thank you very much, and uh, I appreciate it. give him a warm welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Kind of, Our appreciation, we'd like to give you this plaque here, which reads from the Kessler Foundation, with gratitude to James F. Malik, PhD, for presenting the Kenneth L. Esterbrook Distinguished Research Scientist Lecture January 22nd 2006. So thank you so much. Well thank
2: you very much John. Was it expected